RPG lessons learned. When the game is over, when your players are gone, that's when lessons are learned. We are at RPG LL Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, RPGLLPodcast at gmail.com, and check us out online at RPGLessonsLearned.com. Hi, welcome to RPG Lessons Learned, the show where you can learn from our mistakes. Today, it's just me. It's just Dusty. But before you hit the skip button, let me tell you about a tool in my GM toolbox, a contingency plan that I use when a session goes off the rails. The anti-party. What is an anti-party? Well, the general Webster's definition of anti-party is a person or group who are against a political party or against the entire political party system. A specific anti-party movement in 1957 occurred in Russia, where this group tried to depose First Secretary Nikita Khrushchev. But I'm not using either of those definitions. I'm using the RPG definition of anti-party. Anti-party as an anti-paladin. So, an anti-paladin is to a paladin as Sith are to Jedi. Sort of dark mirrors, dark reflections, just as powerful, just as capable, but with different goals. True antagonists to meet the protagonists. That's what an anti-party is. It's a group of NPCs that really mirror the players. They especially mirror the players in three main ways. They have capability, just like the players. They have mobility, just like the players. And they have agency, just like the players. Why would you want to use an anti-party? Well, it's modular. The prep is modular. You can prepare your anti-party right now and use it whenever you need it. The moment a session goes off the rails, the moment your players throw a monkey wrench into your gearbox and you've got no idea what to do, you've got no idea what the plot of the rest of the session needs to be, boom, that's when you pull out the anti-party. In the back of your mind, this anti-party has been hunting the party down. They've been chasing them down, figuring them out, watching them, watching their movements, trying to find them. And then the moment one of your sessions goes off the rails... That's when the anti-party shows up. So you can have this prep ready to go and pull it out exactly when you need it. It's modular. It's also threatening. Anti-parties make for really tough fights. You specifically designed the anti-party to take down your party. And that's allowed. And we'll talk more about that later. But you're really giving your players a unique challenge of this mirror effect, this dark mirror, these perfectly tuned antagonists. The third reason to use an anti-party is to break out of the dungeon. Let the monsters come to them. Let the bad guys or the antagonists choose the ground. Let your players play defense. It's a wonderful bit of variety for your game. So, to sum up the reasons why to use an anti-party, again, it's modular prep, it's threatening, it's a tough fight, and you can break out of the dungeon. Let's review those three traits of an anti-party in more depth. Capability, mobility, and agency. Capability is the least important. For me, it's not crucial, but it's important that my anti-party has capabilities that mirror the capabilities of my party. Now, that doesn't mean that if your party has a cleric, a thief, and a fighter, that your anti-party has to have a cleric, a thief, and a fighter. Instead, what it means is that your anti-party has to be just as powerful on balance 
Your anti-party works together just like your party. They cover each other's weaknesses just like your party. In terms of magnitude of power, they're, they're, they mirror. They have similar capabilities. So how do you achieve that? How do you give them that capability? There are a lot of ways. The simplest way is to just go ahead and use monsters. Find monsters that really work well together. And if they work well together as skinned, great. If you're using a supplement that's already rolled up, you know, a group of monsters that really cover each other's weaknesses and that maximize each other's strengths, great. Use those monsters. That's fine. The fact that monsters like that exist, the fact that the Pathfinder Beginner Box has an evil rogue, an evil wizard, an evil cleric, and an evil fighter right there in the GM booklet is why I say this is the least important. You can find monsters that achieve this. You can use that monster stat block. Two other options, though, and these other options both use character sheets. A full character sheet, not an abbreviated monster stat block. So the second option, the first one that uses a full character sheet, is just use pre-generated characters. A lot of adventures, and I know D&D 5th Edition has an entire zip archive that you can download, of pre-generated characters. Fully generated on a character sheet with all of the depth and all of the well-roundedness and and capability coverage that that implies. You can use those full character sheets that are pre-generated as your anti-party. You can also generate your own characters. Do you ever listen to your players talk about how much fun their rogue is or their barbarian is, and you're a little bit jealous? You'd love to play that? You'd love to toy around with that mechanic? Do. Take a chance to roll an anti-party. Indulge your desire to roll characters. It's great to learn those player-facing rules. So, I don't know if you're like me. I uh, <laughs> I started out D&D really focusing on the DM or GM-facing rules. You know, the CR math, choosing monsters, how skill checks work. And I really didn't focus on how the players played their characters, how the players generated their characters. I didn't even understand how backstab worked. Generating your anti-party as a full party, as characters, gives you a chance to delve into those rules. Honestly, it gives you a chance to fact-check your players, to make sure there aren't a couple of extra D6s in that backstab pool. It also lets you learn the rules for new players. Ever since I started generating my own characters to serve as anti-parties, I've been much better at helping new players understand how those player-facing rules work. So again, the three ways to have your anti-party have the same capability as your party, use appropriate monsters that work together as a group with different abilities that cover each other's weaknesses and strengths, or use pre-generated characters on a full character sheet, or generate characters. Three ways you can increase the capability, or at least cooperative capability, of your monsters. Let's talk about mobility. Mobility's a little more important. Now, you might pass this test. My game until recently did not pass this test. Here's the test. Do your PCs always decide when they're in danger? By that I mean, do they only encounter danger when they leave town? When they're specifically out adventuring? When they're specifically entering a dungeon? Or entering a lair or a castle? 
if that's the only time they're encountering danger, you've got this chance to make a more mobile set of NPCs, this anti-party, and let this anti-party bring the fight to them. Do your NPCs today wait in their lairs, in their castles, for the players to come and engage them? And when your players go away again, your main villains are just there waiting. They're they're there twiddling their thumbs, effectively asleep as far as the world is concerned, until the players show up again. They're these stationary NPCs. Break that mold with an anti-party. Let the anti-party never be in the same place twice, just like your players aren't. Let them move around. Let them travel from town to town. Having a group of NPCs or monsters, having this anti-party mirror the party in terms of mobility can be really disconcerting and interesting for players. It brings the game to life in a different way. Hey, there are people after you. This gang's after you. These bounty hunters are after you. Hey, you see the same guy here? Give me a perception check. You're pretty sure you saw him two towns ago, and he's watching you. Oh, and he just noticed you noticed him, and now he's walking away and sort of glancing at you over his shoulder. Oh, you want to chase him? Oh, he's disappeared down an alley. What an interesting moment. What an interesting way to, to let your players feel drama that they didn't necessarily start, that they didn't necessarily choose to engage with. Your game is not a video game. In video games, well, not all of them, but in some video games, if you're standing in the right spot in town, you're safe. You're good. Nothing's going to bother you. In a Bioware game, you've got to walk up to the bad guys, get within a certain range, activate a certain queue before you're in combat. Well, watch out. These mobile NPCs, these mobile, this mobile anti-party, they could ambush you at the drop of a hat, wherever you are. They've watched your routines. They know what you do. And when you're at your usual apple stall buying your morning apple, that's when you're going to feel a knife in your back. And just think about letting this anti-party have that same mobility. Agency goes hand in hand with mobility. Agency is the most important of the three. Agency means let this anti-party act. Let this anti-party initiate. They act. They don't just react. Think about your party. Your party's got a lot of agency. When your players plan ambushes, they try to negotiate automatic success with you, don't they? I shouldn't even have to roll for this. I'm so well hidden. I've, I've you know, my, I, I just told you that my character spends hours laying this ambush and creating this hide and covering it with leaves and making sure that I'm not in sight. So I should get an automatic success on my stealth roll, right? Hey, I came up with this really novel approach to, to ambush this rider. I'm going to take hours in the middle of the night to bury a rope across this crossroads. And then I'm going to sit in a bush all day. And when I hear him coming, I'm going to yank the rope taut and he, and, and his horse is going to trip. He's going to go sprawling. Aren't I clever? Doesn't that automatically work? Doesn't it make total sense? If it doesn't automatically work, don't I get these huge bonuses? I should get a plus 10 on that roll for all the work that I've done. When your players come up with plans like that and ideas like that, and they use it to talk you into this success, ask yourself, why can't a group of NPCs, why can't an anti-party do the same thing? Why can't they put just as much work into an ambush? Why can't they put just as much thought into a surprise attack and, and let them succeed? Maybe you let the players roll. Maybe you don't. It depends on how much leeway you've given your players. Think about it. And give that same leeway to this anti-party. 
And if your players question it, remind them that you gave them the same automatic success. Hey, Ben, why, why are you complaining? I gave you the same thing two sessions ago. He just, this group of adventurers that are chasing you just did the same thing. They put just as much thought into their ambush. Let the world feel like it's just as capable as your players. By the way, as a fun side note here, if your players pull this one on you, because certainly mine have tried, um, and not exactly this, but something similar to this. Uh, let's say you let an ambush succeed and your players get really mad. Hey, we should have rolled for that. Or my passive perception is 30. There's no way I would have missed this. Or, hey, I'm a barbarian in castles and crusades and I'm not allowed to be surprised. Um, all these things, all these excuses. And, and there's some legitimacy there. And you as a GM can decide how far you want to take this. Uh, in general, I use the leeway I've given them to say, look, I'm not going to do this all the time, but I'm going to let this this group of people chasing you down have all the same autonomy that you have and to use all the same abilities that you have. Here's the interesting tidbit I'm sharing is kind of an aside. If your player uses that to say, well, I'm going to make sure I never get ambushed again. I'm telling you, the GM right now, that from now on, when my character goes from point A to point B or from any point to any point, they never take the same route twice. It's part of his character. I'm writing it down on his character sheet. I'm telling you so that in the future, I don't have to say he's taking a different route because you just know he always does. And they look at you kind of smirkingly like they've just beaten the game. They've destroyed your ability to ever ambush them ever. I said, great. Use it. You just don't be annoyed by it. You just force this player to give their character this interesting trait. This character is now paranoid. Paranoid as hell. Awesome. What a cool character attribute. And use it, have some fun with it. Hey, sure, Ben, I hear you. Absolutely. Your player from now on never goes anywhere the same way. But word of this gets around town. And townspeople start to make little jokes with you about your paranoia. And you start to realize that you're taking a minus two on all your charisma checks in town. But still, Ben, even though he was trying to outmaneuver your ability to have agency as a GM, you just forced Ben to develop his character. You gave him an interesting consequence to this character development, and the game is now more interesting for Ben. Now, if Ben's really annoyed by that, have a conversation with Ben and work it out. But it's just an example that fundamentally changing the game and making your players feel a little uncomfortable is a good thing. You don't want your players to always feel like they know exactly what you as the GM can throw at them. You don't want the kind of players that are going to read the monster manual and say, hey, hacks can't do that. Well, this isn't a hack. This is, you know, Barbara, the so-and-so ultra hag witch, who individually learned this on her own. You know, she's this named character. Your anti-party, they're on a full character sheet. They're going to have names. They're going to have backgrounds. They're going to have background stories. This guy's not, you know, an elven archer out of the fourth edition monster manual. This guy is, I'm trying to think of an elven name, Varus, the, the elven archer from the misty peaks of, you know, Mount Elf, who had a brother who died from an errant arrow, and he's now learned all of these abilities, and he's chasing down the guy who killed his brother, and he's heard about you, and he thinks you might be him. 
you know, you have all of a sudden this great story to draw from to explain why this anti-party has these abilities that normal monsters don't have. They have these capabilities that normal monsters don't have. Now, don't give your anti-party more leeway than your party. Give them the same. Give them the same agency. I think I've beaten this topic into the ground. But let me recap briefly. Remember, your anti-party should have roughly the same capability. They should have really good mobility and really good agency, just like your players. Let these NPCs have all the advantages that you give your players. Let them have all the leeway you give your players. And let them have all the initiative and ability to act and precipitate that your players have. How? How do you incorporate an anti-party into your game? That could be easy. Have your players angered a powerful NPC? Well, guess what? That guy hired a group of assassins. Well, why are these assassins perfectly tuned to kill our party? Well, because the powerful NPC knows who you are. He knows that you're a party of three wizards and a knight. So, of course, he's pulled together a party of assassins that are perfectly designed to take out wizards in a night. Of course, he's come up with a party of a couple of wizard-killing, you know, spell-resistant dwarf barbarians and an evil cleric to face off against a wizard. Of course, they're perfectly tuned to fight you because you've been making enemies and those enemies want to kill you and those enemies aren't stupid. Do any of your players have fantastic items? Great. Then there are a lot of NPCs in the world that want to rob those characters, that would hire thieves, that would go to the Thieves Guild, tell the Thieves Guild all about your party, all about the characters, everything that they think they know, everything that you know, and the Thieves Guild's going to come up with you know, a perfectly tuned band of thieves to be able to steal that item from you. So there are several simple ways to get an anti-party engaged and justify them being very well tuned to the party. There's more nuanced ways you can do this too. Has your party taken part in any sort of gray activities that good people might not like them over, might not appreciate? Well, maybe some of those good people are convinced that your players are actually evil, whether they are or aren't, and they're bent on revenge. You, you, your good players might have ticked off other good people, and those good people decided Oh my gosh, these guys came into our town. They did these actions, which cost us the life of several townspeople. We're going to take up arms. We're going to train, and we're going to go after them for revenge. We're going to go from knowing nothing about combat to being self-taught on this revenge quest against these PCs. And now you have this interesting moral choice. This anti-party, they're justified. Because of the things that you did, Their daughters, sons, nephews, nieces, fathers, mothers, sisters, brother was killed. And now they want revenge. They want to make sure you can't recklessly go into another town, call out the main bad guys, have a wizarding duel that burns down all these buildings. You know, they're going to make sure you can't be that reckless anymore, no matter what you profess your morals are. You can also just use some deus ex machina. Is there some faction that you're dying to introduce? Are there cosmic forces at play? Well, introduce them. Introduce them through an anti-party. Have the anti-party represent this faction that you want to introduce, this cosmic force that wants to get involved with your game. Use an anti-party to steer your campaign in a different direction. So again, several ways to introduce an anti-party or to justify the existence of an anti-party. There's the simple way where you just use pre-existing enemies 
or pre-existing items that the party has to justify the interest of the anti-party. You have a more nuanced way where you can take actions that your party has committed, has undertaken, has done. You can take their deeds and use those deeds to spawn an anti-party. Or you can use a bit of deus ex machina to introduce the next element or the next phase of your campaign. I touched on modularity earlier, but let me reemphasize. Drop this anti-party in when you need it. When your game's off the rails, when you're not sure what to do, when you're confused about the plot, justify it by saying, it's taken a while for them to track your party down. Or, they've been here for a while observing you to plan the ambush. But drop it in when you're ready. It's also modular because it's evergreen. If you use character sheets and character creation rules to generate your anti-party, guess what? You can level the anti-party up as your players level up. As the party goes from level 1 to level 5, your anti-party can go from level 1 to level 5 while they're on their adventures. So no matter when the anti-party shows up, they're tuned to the appropriate level to still be challenging. You can use the same character advancement rules to keep these bad guys evergreen. It's it's so modular. Threatening. So, oh my gosh. Anti-parties can be threatening. Too threatening, in fact, I found. Um, you've really got to mitigate it sometimes. Let's talk about how to make the uh, anti-party more threatening and then how to dial it back if you have to. To be more threatening, first of all, you have an anti-party. A whole party with all the roles, covering the weaknesses, maximizing the strengths, and it's controlled by one person. Your party, your player's characters, aren't always that well-coordinated. They don't always optimize in combat. The cleric's not always in the exact right spot to do healing while your tank tanks and your and your your DPS, your damage per second guys, are dropping all the damage. They don't always manage that because one of the players will have a character moment or they'll have a brain fart and they won't be perfectly optimized at the table. Your anti-party can be really optimized because you're one person and you're using your same tactical mind to move the cleric, to move the thief, to move the fighter, to make sure they're all covering for each other. And you can justify this in the game by saying, this anti-party, they are a well-oiled machine. They train together. They've worked together. They've fought together. They understand each other's weaknesses. They understand each other's strengths. And they have talked about their strategies. They know what they need to do in combat. So you're one person with one unity of purpose, and one tactical vision controlling this entire party. That in and of itself can be lethal. I already talked about the anti-party being justifiably custom-built take on the party. Depending on the backstory, the party spawned the anti-party. Of course the anti-party is perfectly tuned to take out the party. Of course your all-thief party is going to encounter an all-ranger anti-party that are able to spot thieves and are just as good, if not better, at fighting from a distance, that are just as dexterous, even if they don't, they can't pick pockets. Uh, of course, they're perfectly tuned because whatever your players did in the world spawned this anti-party. So really lethal, really challenging. It's one tactical vision, and it's a group specifically designed to take down your party. Now, this can be too lethal. Let's talk about how to mitigate that, le- that lethality. You might want to think about having one less NPC in the anti-party as you have PC in the party. 
So if your party has four players, you might want your anti-party to have three characters. If you still want to have four, you know, anti-party members, fine. Maybe have them one or two levels lower. If you don't want to have them one or two levels lower, and this is what I often go with, by the way, this, this last option, you can adjust the hit points of your anti-party down after a successful ambush. So if I want to fight to be even, I'll have monsters with roughly the same capability, hit points, and armor class as my party. But if your anti-party gets off a successful ambush, and this ambush takes down a couple of hit die off of several of your players, off of several members of the party, just go ahead and take a minute and take off, you know, four and a half or five hit points from every member of the anti-party to adjust them down to the same level. That way, when the surprise round's over, this anti-party is still roughly equivalent in hit points, armor class, defense, offense to the party. And now you can control difficulty by making tactical decisions. Your anti-party can make tactical mistakes. Your archer can fire at the most well-armored target instead of the most vulnerable target. And it's not obvious that you're rigging the combat when you do that because you can narrate to justify that. The archer gets freaked out by the knight running in and he, you know, hurriedly fires a shot off at the knight and oh, look at that. The knight has 22 AC and the shot bounces off. Surprise, surprise. Or even if it hits, the knight has so many hit points that he can take it. You can have your anti-party make poor tactical decisions as long as when the fight starts in earnest and the surprise round is over, they've got roughly the same hit points. So, you know, anti-parties are a challenge. They're tough. And you can carefully mitigate that challenge throughout combat by really thinking about hit points, especially that initial hit point adjustment right after a successful ambush. Let's talk about breaking out of the dungeon. So ask your players and ask them frequently about their in-town routines. Hey, what's your morning routine? Where do you take your meals? Where do you spend your downtime? Ask these questions frequently. Ask them all the time. Get a sense for what their routine is. Get a sense for where they have breakfast and use it. Tell your players flat out. And, and this is true. Hey, I'm trying to get this really well-rounded sense of your character. I want to understand what their full life is like, not just when they're in a dungeon. I want a full picture of how they spend their day. Ask this all the time. So you're setting up their routines. Then spring the ambush and use those routines against them. Ambush the heck out of them. Or if you don't run a combat-focused game, just aggravate them. Just have NPCs show up that the players recognize. The players can tell they're being watched. Even if they catch up to an NPC to ask questions, the NPC plays dumb. It's not going to not play dumb unless the fighter, you know, unless the, the player character precipitates violence, in which case now all of a sudden this NPC is justified in defending themselves as far as the town guard is concerned. You know, just use this anti-party and, and their knowledge of these same routines that your players have been telling you about against them. Shoot, if you don't want to get violent at all, have the anti-party start hanging out with your party's favorite NPCs, trying to turn their NPC friends against them. There's a lot you can do with an anti-party when you really understand what your players are doing when they're in town. What do they do when they're in camp? Who cooks breakfast? What's breakfast look like? These aren't questions you should ask every single time you travel or every single time you, you have downtime, but you should ask it often enough that when you ask it, it's not suspicious. Think about 
laying the groundwork for having a combat suddenly show up outside the dungeon in the middle of town where the players think they're safe. Okay, let me end up by telling you about my experiences with anti-parties. The first anti-party I ever generated was in the fourth edition of D&D. So after the infamous Dusk Massacre, which we've talked about on the show before, please go back and listen to the Dusk episode if you want to hear more about it. After that, it turned the citizens of Fallcrest against my players. And several of those citizens did what I said earlier. They said to themselves, I'm going to go train myself how to fight. I'm going to be Charles Bronson from Death Wish. These, you know, adventurers are responsible for my daughter's death. That's gut-wrenching. That's terrifying. It's horrible. And I'm going to make sure no father, mother, sister, brother has to go through this ever again at the hands of these adventurers. I'm going to train myself up. And if the law won't do anything, I'm going to take them out. So I rolled this anti-party with that in mind. And then my campaign ended. I was just about to spring them. I had just turned over a stronghold in the town of Falkris to the players. And that stronghold was going to get attacked by the anti-party on the very next session. On the very next session. And then we decided to stop playing D&D 4th Edition. And we decided to start playing a, a different game because we were tired of those characters. So... Uh, my first experience with an anti-party was creating this anti-party that I never got to use. Um, Pathfinder. So I already mentioned that I used the evil cleric, the evil rogue, the evil wizard, and the evil fighter from the Pathfinder beginner box to be an anti-party. And the evil rogue from that party annoyed the heck out of the players. You've heard the story. You've heard Mike talk about it. It was fantastic. It was great to have a group of people in town with just as much agency and mobility as my players, who could and did follow them, go places, do things, have their own activities. I played this anti-party the same way that the, the players played their characters. That was so much fun, and it annoyed the heck out of my players. It made the world feel so much realer. So the Pathfinder anti-party worked really well. I, I finally sprung the anti-party in a warehouse. They fought the anti-party. It was a pretty tough fight. But that was one of the first occasions when my party realized they could use these elemental gems to summon elementals. And they took out two members of the anti-party fair and square, and they used elementals to take out the last two. But it was a tough fight for those first couple of NPCs and the anti-party. Playing them like characters, giving them the same advantages, thoughts, capabilities, um, tactical awareness as players, made it a tougher fight. My last and most recent experience with an anti-party is at the Vampire Quick Start. I have alluded to this game, but I've not really talked about it in depth yet. I'm using the 1997 Quick Start rules from Vampire the Masquerade to run a Vampire the Masquerade game just for Nathan and Chris. It's just when the three of us can get together. When Mike's busy, when Brian's busy, Nathan, Chris, and I play this Vampire the Masquerade game. Well, in the quick start, there's no monsters. There's no there, there are no NPCs pre-generated. So I used the character generation rules from the quick start guide, and I spent actually a ton of time creating this Google document where I have different levels of NPC for every clan, for every one of the of, of the Camarilla clans. I've got I think five different levels of NPC generated that I can pull and use. Uh, it rolled just like characters. Actually, confession. 
in the very first session of Vampire the Masquerade, I used an anti-party against the party. Uh, I had more members of the anti-party, but they were they had way less power. And I totally massacred Chris and Nathan's characters. I totally massacred them. We were recording the game, and I stopped the recording and was like, let's redo that combat. Let's go back and change this, this, and this, and let's have you win it, because... I was, I was, I'm hoping to release those recordings of that game and have it be, you know, dramatic and interesting. And it was my very first combat in the system. So, you know, I requested, you know, on bended knee, a mulligan from the players and they very kindly indulged my request for a mulligan since I had improperly tuned difficulty of the combat because it was my first time playing that system. But I guess what I'm trying to say is I've used anti-parties. I've used them to great effect. Sometimes the players find ways around them. Sometimes the anti-party proves a little too tough. But it is a great tool to have ready, to think about, and to drive your game prep in a modular way that you can pull out, use, challenge the players with, have an interesting session with, and then move on. That's it. That's my sort of essay on anti-parties. Just remember, anti-parties are defined by having the same capability, mobility, and agency of players. You want to consider using anti-parties because the prep is modular, the combat is threatening, and it gets your players out of the dungeon. It gets combat out of the dungeon, and it makes the whole world feel like a challenge. It makes the whole world feel alive, and that can really liven up your game. I hope you can take something away from this. I hope you find anti-parties interesting. Enjoy your game. People call them postmortems, evaluations, appraisals, reviews, retrospectives. We call them lessons learned, and we're sharing ours with you.